Good morning, church. My name is Brady, and I'll be reading out of Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out, two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thanks, Brady. You all, maybe go ahead and be seated. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm so grateful and glad to, to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, for those of you who I don't know, uh, my name is Brian Carroll. I'm one of the pastors here. You met Ryan earlier, um, but um, I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer. And it's just, I love Sundays. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be together, uh, and it's a privilege to get to, to preach the Word of God. Uh, it is a grace, uh, and, and it is not lost on me that, um, uh, that the, this, this work that the Lord has called me to is not because I have anything to offer. Uh, I'm especially aware of that this week. It's not because uh, I'm gifted. It's not because um, I've got lots of things to say, but the, for whatever reason, the Lord has allowed me to. And so my hope this morning, as we walk through Mark, we're actually gonna be looking at verses one through 29. Uh, my hope for us this morning is that uh, Jesus be made much of, uh, and that I'm not a distraction to that. And so anyways, go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to, to Mark 6, uh, verses 1 through 29. We're going to be covering a huge chunk uh, this morning. And so, um, and we'll pretty much be camping here throughout our time together. But uh, the question I want to begin with for us to consider is, how would you gauge success? Um, as we think about this idea of what success is, it's, uh, it's probably something that's a, more be more so on a subconscious level that is pretty motivating and, and actually has a lot in how we navigate our days. Uh, as we think about our jobs, um, how do you, would you measure success at your job? Some of y'all, it's, it's getting things done. Uh, if you're in sales, it's making money. Uh, maybe it's completing a project. Or maybe for some, it's just like, I just want to get to five o'clock uh, and I want to be done. That's it. Um, but, but even if that's not um, like, like a, a, an express explicit thought, that might be an undergirding motivation of what success is. Or I know we've got some students in here, college, high school, uh, junior high. Um, how would you measure success as a student? Uh, some of y'all uh, are, are really smart, uh, and I'm thankful for people like y'all because y'all are the people that are going to cure cancer one day. Um, but for some, like, it's getting good grades. It's getting the straight A's. For some, it might be just getting grades. Uh, that was me. Uh, see your way out of things, right? Um, uh, but maybe that's like, what motivates you for success as a student? Um, as a parent, helping your kids know Jesus and, and, and helping them be good citizens, as a spouse, um, as a friend, as a coworker. I mean, there's all sorts of different hats that we wear in life that we, this question of what is success or what does it look like to achieve? Um, what does it look like uh, to, to find those things in the, whatever area it is? It's this, it's this undergirding uh, thing that I think helps us. And we may not phrase it like that, but we, we think about accomplishing something, finishing something, uh, achieving, uh, trying, working, whatever it might be. Uh, we, we see that all these level, all these things in some ways in a variety of situations can play a part in our day and how we navigate it. 
Metrics are not a bad thing. Seeing what is success and, and what isn't is not a bad thing. Uh, but one of the things that I think it's really easy for us to do, uh, incredibly easy for us to do as Christians, is that we project uh, what we, how we measure success we, uh, we project how we measure achieving and goal reaching. We project uh, the way we achieve those things in our Christian life and also on the church, both Redeemer and Big, Big C. It's really easy for us, I think, uh, to see uh, the metrics and how we measure like, our work or our, 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 our family life. It's really easy to project success in those areas onto our following of Jesus. See, as a Christian, we can easily, it's, and we do this, but we easily measure our behavior. We want to see, hey, am I, am I doing all the right things? Um, or am I not doing the, the wrong things? Um, or, or with the church, we can easily measure success as a, hey, we've got a full room. We've got a, a great budget. Look at all the programs that we have. There's all, we have all the small groups, all the Bible. All, again, it, it, these things are not bad things, but what it's really easy for us to do is that we can see a success of, of our following of Jesus in a way that actually isn't what Jesus does. We can measure our fruit. We can, we, so we can measure um, our following of Jesus in a way that really doesn't match with how Jesus lived and walked and calls us to. Um, and so what we're going to be looking at today in Mark 6 is that we see three different scenes. Uh, and, and really in these scenes, what, we're gonna, what Jesus, is, the author, is going to be getting at is that we're going to see what is it actually, what is this measurement of success? Or the better way to ask it, what does it look like for us as Christians uh, to flourish? What does it look like for the gospel to advance, the kingdom of God uh, to make headway? What does success according to Jesus look like? And what we're going to see is that ultimately success fruit, the kingdom expanding is not through what we can do. It's not through the programs we can build. It's not through us trying harder and doing better. It's not from us having a room full of people. It's not from the metrics of, that we like to measure as people, but rather it's through faith and repentance. The kingdom grows not through the means of things that we can do, but rather through faith and repentance. And we're going to see, and by, by what I mean by the gospel flourishing and advancing, the kingdom of God advancing, is not just numerically. Yes, we want more people to come and know Jesus. We do want that. But the gospel also advances in our lives as, the, as Jesus becomes a, takes deeper root into our hearts and we live more, uh, we live more of our life out of a love for him. Where the gospel takes deeper root, the gospel, the kingdom advances. And so peppered all throughout Mark 6, 1 through 29, is this, you see these different people uh, reject Jesus for different reasons. And really kind of what you're going to see is we're going to see this contrast through the rejection, people who reject the gospel. We actually get a picture of what does it mean to actually embrace Jesus? So you're, you're, we're going to see this contrast, but, but we're gonna, what I want us to look at today is that at the end of the day, the matter, this issue of the kingdom advancing, the gospel flourishing in our lives, um, Jesus being made much of it, all that we do, it ultimately comes down to a matter of trust. It comes down to a matter of trust. And when we, as we're going to look in Mark 6, 
There's a variety of reasons why people reject Jesus or don't trust him or don't see a need for him. And I think as we look at these ways, uh, they might strike a little bit close to home. But my, my hope for us today is that we see Jesus is worth it. That we see Jesus as worth it. So we get to verse one, and what we see is that, uh, so we, like I said, we, there's three different scenes that are happening in, in verses one through 29. And the first one, Jesus is back home with his family where he grew up. And so it was one Sabbath morning, he's in the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching. Uh, and, and as he's teaching, all who's there is his family, so his brothers, his sisters, probably some childhood friends, a lot of relatives, people who knew who Jesus was. People who didn't just like know Jesus, but they grew up together. They saw him grow up. They saw him uh, enter into the field of carpentry. They saw him uh, as, as they just were around each other. There was a lot of proximity. And so Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Remember, he's, he's been public in ministry for a little bit now. And as he's teaching, what we see is that the, the people around him who know him aren't like, oh my goodness. Like, hey, look, he's like, like, doing some really cool stuff. He's like really like smart now. We, don't, we see none of that. Rather, what we see instead is people asking questions, not out of curiosity, but rather of, of ridicule. You see in, in verse two, he, he, the people are asking, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. Again, these questions that, he's, that they're asking and they're pondering, it's, they're, they're not positive. He's, they're, not, they're not like, wow, look at the mighty works. Wow, look at his wisdom. But rather, this guy? Jesus? And, and what we see is this posture, because of the familiarity with him, for whatever reason, they could not believe him. Because of their familiarity, they could not believe him. And the text uses this word, and they were offended by him. And, it wasn't, and it's not just like that's like a one-time thing. They, he said something and they were offended, but rather it's this posture of a hardness of heart in which they just continually saw Jesus. And the word offense means stumbling block. Saw him as a stumbling block. They saw him as an offense. They saw him as someone to, to kind of distance themselves from. And what's interesting, you look back in Mark 3, what we see, we see kind of a similar scene in which Jesus is starting to preach the kingdom coming through him and his family thinks he's out of his mind. They think he's delusioned. And so they try to like bring him back and he says no. But what you see now in Mark 6 is a similar thing and you see this escalation. It's not just that they, they think he's out of his mind, but rather they're starting just to completely reject him. And so you see this, this escalation happening and the, the response of Jesus is actually quite spectacular. He, he says in verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he says in verse 5, the text says, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, was amazed by their unbelief. 
See, their rejection and opposition uh, to his teaching, to who he was, made his hometown, hometown bad soil for the gospel to flourish. And, and because of their rejection, he says he could hardly do any miracles there. He was unable to, except for just a few healings and things like that. Now, his, the rejection of his family did not deter his mission to continue to preach the gospel because you see at the end of verse 6 that he went among about other village and, and continued to preach this message. Uh, but what you see, what's so interesting is that this familiarity that his family had with him ultimately led to their rejection of him. The familiarity, this familiarity they had led to the rejection. And the thing about familiarity is familiarity can lead to complacency. Just kind of this meh. And where there is complacency, usually there is, is distrust. The fruit of their familiarity was rejection. And I, th- and I think this is, is kind of uh, something that is very, I think, uh, relevant to the culture that we live in in San Angelo. Um, so so San Angelo is, you know, we're in the heart of the Bible Belt, right? Again, which is not a bad thing. You know, most people you talk to, is when, they're going to have some belief in God. Um, they might not have any uh, outward antagonism uh, towards people who share faith. So it's really, in a lot of ways, like we're freely to speak about Jesus here. And like, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's, that's a bad thing. Um, but we have the kind of familiarity with Jesus in which people can like use the right language, say the right things. You know, church is kind of just a part of the culture we do, but you not really actually know Jesus. Familiarity can actually be a deceptive thing. Because if we're around church culture enough, if we're around, like, again, like a lot of people just go to church as a rhythmic thing. This is just what we do. They don't really consider or ask. This is just what we do. You can be around church culture. We can be around circles in which uh, cultural Christianity is lifted up, uh, but not really actually know Jesus. And, and the fruit of familiarity is rejection. And that rejection, the scary thing is that rejection might not be an outward like Jesus's family, like no, but rather it's a complacency that just is because we just, no, this is what we do. We don't actually realize that we don't really know Jesus. So, so the culture here in St. Angelo, by again, praise God that it is friendly towards Christianity. But if we are not careful, we can confuse a friendly culture with our faith because we may not actually have it. And so I even remember one time I was at AS, when I was at ASU, kind of in the middle of my own party phase. Uh, I, I was, I was during that, during that season, I had a lot of just, uh, I felt guilty. I knew I wasn't doing what I was supposed to, was supposed to doing and things like that. And a lot of my friends, uh, they knew that they, they, they knew that I was, I was a Christian. And I remember specifically one friend in particular told me like, Hey man, like, like we were about to go like party and stuff like that. And like, he said, Hey man, don't worry about it. Like Jesus will forgive you. He will. God is so gracious, kind, and merciful. But what's the posture of the heart in that statement? Jesus is just a means for me to do whatever I want. See, there's enough familiarity with Jesus and the gospel to where in that situation, my friend just wanted to see him as a means for me to go do what I want to do or for him to do what, it's just, all of a sudden it's this weird justification in which we use Jesus as just a means to get what we want. 
In that case, Jesus is not the aim. Our faith isn't in Jesus. Our faith is in ourselves. And we just kind of use them and mix them in there because it's convenient. Our culture, our Bible Belt culture can easily make Jesus a convenient prop or accessory and not Lord. We have to be aware that familiarity, that this culture we live in is not, again, a bad thing, but it can easily deceive so many. We can easily think we're Christians just because we go to church, we participate in church things, we do the right things, but our hearts might be far from him. And this is what we see. With, and again, this is a little bit different with Jesus' family because there wasn't outward uh, rejection. But make no mistake, their familiarity was the reason why they rejected. And we need to be careful. A good question for us to ask ourselves is, do I actually see my need for Jesus? Or is he just convenient in certain circles? Do I see that actually I have a need for repentance in my life? Or is Jesus just um, kind of my get-out-of-jail-free card? Jesus' family had a familiarity with him that ultimately made it to where they couldn't believe. They couldn't believe in that moment. Sometimes, though, rejection is a little bit more blatant. It's a little more obvious. And so in the next little section, um, which is the one that Brady read, um, which is kind of sandwiched in between, and we'll kind of get to the reason why that's the one we wanted to to focus on. But what we see, so so after this scene with Jesus' family, they go out, um, Jesus calls his disciples, and he sends them two by two, and he sends them out to ultimately preach the gospel. What is he calling them to preach? Well, you look back in Mark 1, uh, when Jesus, uh, John, John baptizes Jesus, and, and Jesus says, hey, uh, the kingdom is here. I am here. Repent and believe the good news. This is the message that he ultimately he entrusts with the disciples to preach. As they're, going, as they're sent all around that, that area, uh, they're to send the preachers' message that the Messiah is here. Repent. Repent and believe. And so uh, this message that they carried him was not their own words. It wasn't, it wasn't something that they made up, but rather it was something that, that Jesus told them to do. And they were not to take anything with them except for what they were wearing and the, and the staff. More on that in a, in, a sec, in a little bit. But he gives them the specific instruction in verse 10. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so what Jesus makes abundantly clear in in these verses is that people will embrace the gospel, and people will reject the gospel. People will believe and repent, and people will want to continue in their own way. And that's kind of specifically what you see, the nature of the rejection of, of uh, the warning in verse 11, is that the nature of the people who would reject are people who you just would not flat out believe. And a lot of, in that specific area, what probably caused a lot of the unbelief, and this is just kind of speculation, but what probably caused a lot of the unbelief is that the teaching of Jesus didn't mesh well with how people held the Mosaic law. 
They, they, it kind of contradicted or kind of went against. And so there is a lot, there's probably a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, wondering, but at the end of the day, it was this idea that, that they did not see a need for Jesus. Because what's interesting, whenever he says that uh, in verse 12, that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, the way that this is written is not just like a one-time thing. It's not just like, okay, repent one time and that's it. But rather, it's this continual posture of repentance. It's this life of continual submission to Jesus. That's what they were preaching. And when we were continually having to submit and repent and turn to Jesus, what are we continually having to do? Turn away from our own desires. Turn away from what we want to do. And so this preaching was one in which it was a complete submission to Jesus. And most people did not want to do that. There was a comfortability in what they're already doing, or there was a unbelief and didn't see that Jesus was who he said he was. They saw no need for him. And ultimately they preferred their own way. Do we see how this might translate to today? Do we see? And, and it's really easy to, 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 to look out there, but I think it's also important to, to look in here as well. But like I said, there are many reasons people reject the gospel. There are many reasons um, that people have unbelief. For some, it's an intellectual thing. They see no need for Jesus. Jesus is a bit antiquated. The things that he's calling us to aren't really relevant for progressive America. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, And even on the far spectrum, you might even have people say, hey, being a Christian is actually dangerous. It is bad for society for people to follow Jesus. Uh, or so for some, you know, we, it's, it's maybe more of a practical thing. Like we live in America where our, like we have a lot of stuff, right? And we have so much stuff. We have so many things to where our, we can build these comfortable lives, these lives that feel very secure to where from a practical standpoint, like we just don't really need him. We, we're, we're okay. We're good. Or we have... Other ways, another way that people might prefer their own way, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest religion uh, in, in America, and I think it's, it's seeped into our own hearts as well, is this idea of individualism, this you-do-you culture. And what's celebrated in our, in our world is, that, hey, you do whatever you want. You know, but the moment, the moment we tell people that, hey, maybe what you want is actually not the best for you, man, anathema, blasphemy, Right? We, we want our own way. And, and the greatest good is you becoming yourself. The greatest good is you becoming yourself. And a lot of times we just don't want to be told we're wrong, right? We just don't want to be told we're wrong. And, and Jesus, when he confronts our sin, often will do that. Lots of reasons. But what we see here that there's in, these, in verse 10 through 11, that there is, a, there is just a, uh, an unbelief that people did not want to continually turn to Jesus, but rather want to continually turn to themselves. And the good news of Jesus and faith in him requires that we die to ourselves, right? We are to die to ourselves when we follow him. It is costly uh, to follow God. And God is gracious and kind in helping us follow him. We are only able to follow him because of his grace and mercy, which he lavishes upon us. But make no mistake, when we follow Jesus, he will continually confront uh, our sinful nature, he will continually confront these things and people not, might not exactly like that. Again, people reject him. Like they might not use the language of like, of measuring, 
But a lot of times when people reject the gospel, they're saying ultimately that Jesus has no place in my life. I have no need for Jesus. I have no need for him. And so he told the disciples to preach this message to people, to expect rejection. And when he told them to reject, hey, what does he tell them to do? Shake off the dust of their feet. And that actually would have been a phrase that was familiar to them because whenever a Jew was to go into a Gentile land, whenever they were leaving, they were to shake the dust off their feet as to not make Israel unclean because of Gentile soil. And so he's using this phrase to essentially say like, hey, like their, uh, their rejection is not on you anymore. Shake the dust off and move on. But we see that Jesus warns that people will reject because they still want their own way. So we see that people reject because of familiarity. We see that people will reject because they, we just want to do our own thing. And we see uh, another aspect of rejection in verses 14 through 29. And so in Mark 16, 6, 14 through 29, we, we, are, we get to see the story of what happened to John the Baptist. What actually happened to him? And what's really interesting and how this is, is placed. So you see in the beginning of Mark, this ascent of John the Baptist. Meaning you see that he, his fame, his popularity is is. is, is He's going nuts. People are being baptized. He's preaching this message, repent and, for, and, for, and receive the forgiveness of sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. He was the messenger that was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And what you see in the beginning of Mark is this ascent of John the Baptist and his popularity and fame. But now what we're seeing is this descent. You, we're, we're learning what happened to John. He had this ascent and now all of a sudden he's descending. And, and what is interesting about here is that this is kind of a foreshadow. Because what we see in the verse 14 is we see this, this reminder that Jesus' fame is actually now ascending. You see in verse 14 that he said that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Jesus' populator was ascending. But what we see is it almost like this is a foreshadow of also of Jesus' descent to the cross. Because as John ascended in popularity and eventually was rejected and executed, as we'll see in a second, that's what happens to Jesus. But what we see is that this, this, in this scene, verses 16 through 20 are actually a flashback. This isn't lifetime. This is actually a flashback. This is King Herod looking back on what happened to John the Baptist. And so what happened was um, all these kinds of theories, as Jesus' fame was being made known, all these sorts of weird theories were beginning to kind of take place. He's Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet from the Old Testament. He it was very, very, uh, like God used him in mighty, mighty ways to work against the evil of Israel during the time he was alive. So many people thought that Jesus was, was Elijah, or, or they also thought that they just might've been one of the prophets of old. In Deuteronomy 18, um, it pro the law then prophesies that there will eventually be a prophet to come, and she listened to, who's ultimately pointing to Jesus. But they didn't necessarily equate Deuteronomy 18 with Jesus, they just thought that hey, he might be a great prophet. But then some people, and this is what, what King Herod believed, or uh, uh, Herod was actually a tetrarch, that's what they called him, um, that, that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. That John the Baptist had raised from the dead and, and taken the form of, of Jesus of Nazareth. All these theories were wrong. They're, none of them were right. But for King Herod specifically, this is the one he believed. And that's important. King Herod believed that Jesus might have been John the Baptist reincarnated or raised from the dead. 
Why did he believe that? Why did he, did he hope for that? So what we see in, in, in this, this text is that King Herod, um, not a great guy. Not, 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 not necessarily known for his character and integrity. Um, but in a very weird way, he had this kind of respect for John the Baptist in which like John the Baptist continually, so kind of back on Herod, he uh, essentially takes his alive brother's wife, Herodias, um, in so doing, puts away his old wife, uh, uh, Philip, uh, uh, Herodias divorces Philip, his brother, and he takes this, he has this unlawful marriage. And John the Baptist was continually telling me, hey, it is not lawful for y'all to, to be together. So he's calling him to repentance. He's continually uh, uh, confronting the sin of Herod. And Herod doesn't listen, but he kind of does in some way. It says uh, in verse, um, uh, um, I don't know the reference. I'm looking, uh, sorry. I'm, this is when you have us when you, you talk really fast and you get lost in your notes. <laughs> uh, human, I'm human. Um, he says, though, that when he heard him, when, when Herod heard him, this is in verse 20, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. He, he, he didn't listen to John, but he loved to hear John. And so there was this respect for John. He, he was a holy man. He recognized that there was something about him to where he couldn't quite put him to death. But that's what Herodias wanted him to do. Herodias hated John. He didn't, she did not like the fact that he would constantly call them to repentance, constantly call him to both of them to like, hey, this is not good what you're doing. And so what, is, what the text says is that she wanted to find a way to kill him, but Herod would not let her until verse 21. What happens? Herod throws this big party. Lots of influential people were there. Lots of celebrities, lots of powerful uh, military people were there. Noble people were there. He throws this big party in his palace. And what we see is that Herodias gets her daughter to do a dance. And I'm not going to go into the specifics. It was not PG. It was not PG. And this dance pleased everyone that was there especially Herod. Herodias sneakily plays to the weakness of her husband to ultimately get what she wants. And what we see in the midst of this, that, that he was pleased in such a way that he goes to this girl and says, hey, I will give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And, and, and so the girl goes to Herodias, her mom, and says, what should I give him? And she's like, John the Baptist, head. I want the head of John the Baptist. And when Herod heard this, the text says that he became exceedingly sorrowful. Exceedingly sorrowful. Why? Because of this weird relationship that he had with John. But what does Herod do? What does Herod do? Does he do the right thing or does he save face? Think about who was around him. Noble people, influential people, rulers, what would it have looked like for Herod to make this oath, to make this promise, and then back out on it? What would people around him have thought? But because, and it says the text is, but because of his oath and his yes, he did not want to break his word to her. And so he has John the Baptist executed. Uh, and it's, what's interesting, the, 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 the girl adds, on a platter. And so you, you see that John the Baptist uh, is executed and why is he executed? 
Why, why ultimately does Herod, who had some weird respect for John, didn't actually listen to him, but actually had some weird, like, like softness of a heart towards him. Why? Fear of man. Herod feared man, loved him and loved himself more than he did cared to really consider what John said. It was the fear of man that ultimately led Herod to have John the Baptist executed. And we know the proverb, the fear of man is a snare. What is a snare? It's a trap that's meant to kill. Because interestingly enough, as history tells us, so Herod um, has this happen, doesn't confess, doesn't repent, wants to be seen, elevated in the, in, in the way of man. But what, as history tells us, what eventually happens to Herod and Herodias, his brother Agrippa uh, accuses him of treason against Rome. They are then ex- exiled to a province, another province in Rome to where him and his wife both kill themselves. The wages of sin is death. The fear of man has no life in it. It ultimately leads to death. And so when we, we, we fear man the more than we fear God, we will orient our lives in such a way in which the gospel will never really take root in our heart. Jesus will never really become Lord to us, but rather we, when we fear man more than we fear God, we will posture our lives in such a way in which we want the approval, the acceptance of others, or we want to be around people who approve what we do, or we want to uh, make sure that we work our lives in such a way where we don't get in trouble. I mean, there's a whole reasons of why we fear a man, but when we fear man, scripture ultimately warns us that there is no life, no gain, no joy, no good in this. The fear of man is a snare, but, it, but those who trust in the Lord are safe. Herod feared man more than he feared God, and it ultimately led to his death. And so as we look at each of these scenes, as, as we look at Jesus' rejecting, uh, Jesus' family rejecting him because of their familiarity, and we see the, the people that they were, the disciples were going to be preaching to reject Jesus because they didn't want to turn from their own way. And as we see Herod reject Jesus because of a fear of man. At the end of the day, the common denominator for each of these is that there people have a bigger trust in themselves and what they want to do as opposed to Jesus. See, it, it comes down to a matter of trust. People trust in themselves more than they do God. And before we judge Herod too harshly, and before we judge Jesus' family too harshly, and, and before we judge the people who the disciples preach to too harshly, we have to understand that we are them. We are Herod who fears man more than we fear God. We are Jesus' family who, because of familiarity with what he says, um, it's so easy for us to be complacent and not see Jesus as Lord, but just kind of as this nice accessory as a part of our lives. Or it's really easy for us to not want to follow Jesus because we like our own ways better. Because we think we know the path to life. We know the path to joy. And so because of that, we want to engage in what we want to do. Before we judge the people who reject Jesus too harshly, we have to see that we are them. In and of ourselves, this is where we will be prone to go. 
Apart from the grace of God, this is us. So then, if we see that the gospel will have no traction in our lives when we continually trust in ourselves, how then does the gospel advance and flourish in our lives and take root in our lives? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. When Jesus is the aim of our faith, when he is the point of our life, when he is the aim of our worship, we will see that that will lead to a life of repentance. That will lead to a life of continually going to him, leading on his grace and mercy. When we have a, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? It means that I could do nothing on my own. I have nothing to bring to the table to help me close the gap between a perfect, righteous, and holy God and me being sinful and broken. I could do nothing to close that gap, but Jesus did the work for us. Jesus went to the cross and he paid the price for our sin so that when we come to him in faith and trust that, Lord, I have nothing to bring to this, but you did everything I need, all of a sudden the gap is closed. It's this belief that Jesus did what we could not do. And this is why trusting ourselves will never lead to life. Because we cannot attain the righteousness needed to ultimately go before a righteous God. But Jesus did that for us. We see in Ephesians 2, uh, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, when we see our need for Jesus, when we move away from trusting in our own way, in our own will, and doing what we want, when we see our need for Jesus, uh, the fruit of that will be faith and repentance. And we've said this before, and I'll keep saying it. Repentance is not a bad word. It's in fact, it's at what it is. It's an invitation to go to God and get more of God and him helping you go on a life that is full of more joy and good and ultimately more of him. When we trust that his way is better, that will lead to a life of continual trust in him and continual repentance. And this is the message that the disciples were preaching. The forgiveness of sins is available. You don't have to be stuck. You don't have to trust in yourself. And that's good news. And Jesus, when Jesus sends them out, what's interesting, he sends them out with no weapons, no food, no money, no, no extra tunic. I imagine they probably stunk. Um, I, that's, what I, that's what I first saw that went into my mind when I saw that. He sends them out to be completely dependent. What does he actually, he does send them out with something. What does he send them out with? Authority, not their own, his. He sends them out with his authority to preach this message. And so what we see is that the kingdom, the flourishing of the kingdom ultimately depends on our dependence. The flourishing of the kingdom ultimately depends on us seeing our need. And it's in this culture in which we realize our need and dependence that the gospel will spread like wildfire. The gospel spreads when we as a people believe in Jesus and rely on him to help us grow and, and help us uh, reach others when, when he, when he, and help us rely on him for all things. Need and dependence are the way of the kingdom advancing. Because when we are needy and dependent, we are going to the one who's capable and strong. Jesus is able to help, is, is able to grow his kingdom. And the way he uses us 
is our constant submission to him. And he is gracious and kind as he does that. So as, as we wind down, um, uh, and as we uh, are, are trying to think more about how does the kingdom advance, we have to move away from what we do and ultimately look at what Jesus did. If I were to ask the question in here, uh, how many of you would like to know Jesus more? How many of you like to grow closer to him more? How many of you would love to see your friends and your coworkers and your family who don't know Jesus know him? Most of us would probably all raise our hands, right? Most of us would probably um, want, like, yeah, I want that. And it's really easy as I ask that question to think about, okay, here's what I need to change in my life. All right, here's all the things I need to participate on. Here's all like the, I mean, we, our first response oftentimes in these questions like this is to like, what can I do? But rather the first step, again, all, you know, there's so many good things and spaces for us to engage in to help our, help our growth and maturity in Christ. But the first step, the first thing that we always do, and the thing that we're always going to do uh, in, in order to gain intimacy and grow in, our, in knowing Jesus more and letting the gospel take root is faith and repentance. The fuel of intimacy with God and for the gospel to flourish in our hearts is ultimately seeing our need for him. And what Mark 6 ultimately does, it points out our need for Jesus. It points out our need for him. And, we, and we, when Mark 6 also shows us how the kingdom grows. The kingdom does not grow through our ways, through trusting in ourselves, but rather the kingdom grows when we rely fully on Jesus and what he's done. And this is what we celebrate uh, when we come to the table together. And Clay, you can go ahead and come on up. The way that the kingdom of God grows um, is, is through what Jesus has done. And so, so as we're partaking in communion this morning, um, here's what I want us to, to think about. First off, what I want us to do is knowing that we come and celebrate. We come and celebrate that Jesus made a way for us to know him. He gave us a way uh, to, to have a, a life in him. And he, he did that as he spilled his blood on the cross and he broke his body, which is what the elements that we take represent. So, so we come and, and we, we celebrate that Jesus did the work for us. But, but as we engage and as we have this time in which we're celebrating what God has done, let us also consider a few things as well that the text might be causing us to think. Have you bought a, Jesus, a version of Jesus where he just is a, a nice little tool and prop in your life, where he's just a success, an accessory, has familiarity with him, led you to honestly not really believe. And I want to be careful as I say this. Are you a Christian? Has familiarity caused you to buy a version of Jesus, and you might have been buying it for years? That's not the real Jesus of Scripture. Are there areas of our lives in which we don't think Jesus is really relevant? We don't really want Jesus to, to step into. We don't really want Jesus to, to, to cause us to, to give up this thing. Do we, do we fear people in such a way that where it controls every aspect of our life and the trust and fear of God has been minimized? 
the good news is that if we have answered yes or positive to any of these, the first step in, in engaging in these thoughts and these things that the spear might be stirring up to is to bring it to Jesus because he is gracious and merciful and will listen to you. He doesn't expect you to clean yourself up. He doesn't expect you to, to uh, present a pure version of yourself, but rather it's in a broken and weak state in which he actually is able to do work. So we, we want to use communion as a space to confess, knowing that we, are, we received grace and mercy. And that is ultimately what transforms us. That is ultimately what transforms us. The, the world ultimately will know Jesus more. The church will proclaim Jesus more. Not through our activity, not through what we do, not through our good behavior. The church will know Jesus more through our faith and repentance. And so us engaging in these spaces right now is actually proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so my hope for each one of us this morning is that at the end of the day, you would see Jesus is worth it and to trust him. You would see him as good, gracious, and kind. And that he is worth our lives. You can expect rejection, just like uh, people rejected the gospel. You can ex- expect opposition. But what you cannot expect is that Jesus won't leave, will leave you. He will never leave you. He will never leave you. And so, would you engage in these things? Would you be honest with yourselves? Ask yourselves the hard questions. And know as you do so, you have a gracious and kind Father who will listen and help 